everybody. Welcome back to Soil Matters. Guys, take it away. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Well, where do we want to start today, boys? <laughs> start with Bill. Oh, you want you want to we don't you want to jump right into it, do you? Yeah. 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 Why not? All right. So we touched a little bit last um, Monday on the properties um, of the sand and silt and clay, and you know something I'd like to throw up food for thought um, is the concept of clay pure clay and pure sand has has have either one of you ever seen a situation where it has gone fully anaerobic not really right i would say i would say that i i think the anaerobic when i've seen it in clay i've seen it through moldboard plowing and creating a compaction layer and then getting layers of, of, of like kind of a compacted zone where you have anaerobic. A black layer on top, yeah. correct? Exactly. Yeah. So what is that? You get that foul smell, right? Right. So what is that black layer? I can answer it for you if, if you prefer. I mean, it's, it's basically silt and organic fines that have migrated down into the soil profile and can't go any further. So in nature, right, like pure clay vein, it, we use it for pottery, but I've never seen pure clay go anaerobic to a point it smells. And the same is true with sand. Right, because they're, they're not uh, as, as, as prone to having a lot of microbial life. They're mineral. So we talked a little bit about clay. There's two ways clay form in nature. Uh, one is when a glacier runs rock over the top of rock, it creates these clay platelets. So wherever you go to a glacier melting, you'll get tremendous amounts of clay in the water. Um, sometimes so fine that it's called nano clay because the platelets are just so fine that, that they say suspended in the water for a long period of time. This was true, and we talked about this last week um, as well, but we'll go over it again. And that was when the Egyptian, uh, the prime minister to uh, agriculture was getting complaints from the farmers that the fields were just not as productive as they used to be. So he hired people to go out to these, the floodplain of, of the Nile and take soil samples to determine why it is that it wasn't as fertile as it had always been. Lo and behold, they realized that uh, upstream in another country, someone had built a hydroelectric uh, dam. And what happened behind that dam was those nanoparticles were settling out and not continuing down the river. And every spring when they flood, they weren't getting those micronized um, clay particulates that were the actual fertility of those fields that was replaced every year for thousands of years. So this goes back to understanding that clay is mineral and the same with sand. Sand can be either quartz or it can be uh, calcitic sand. So basically an old um, coral reef that got ground up. And so, you know, that's a really wonderful source, long-term source of calcium in, in your soil, whereas the quartz is not. But again, 
they're minerals. So what, what is silt? Well, we know this about silt. Silt's negatively charged. Um, if, you, if you pile a bunch of silt up, it will go anaerobic. So what does that tell you that silt is? Common sense would say that's got to be organic matter. Because, because it can house that high level of bacteria. And like if you've ever walked along a riverbank and your foot sunk into the mud and you pulled it out and it smelled like hell, well, there you go. And, and I'm not talking like in the river. I'm talking on the bank of the river. So that these are the kinds of things that drove me to question soil science as a nature, as dogma, because it's like, well, you don't talk about the fact that sand settles out of uh, the water, out of solution the fastest. You don't talk about sand as a mineral content. You talk about it as a particulate size. You don't talk about clay being magnetic as far as both positive and negative charge. And therefore it settles out the last in, in the water column and or silt, which settles out in the middle and holds a, a negative charge. So these kinds of things are, you know, important to understand if you're a scientist moving forward and trying to understand specific types of uh, nutri uh, nutrition in various types of soils, right? They, they, they label these, they label the soils based on the particulate that settles out in a sieve, not as a property or a, a power of, of those individual particles. And so that, that's that's where I came to the conclusion that it has to be organic and not mineral. No soil. Ask any soil scientist; they'll, they'll tell you I'm fucking lunatic for questioning. But wouldn't wouldn't you expect an ace, uh, a kind of a loamier soil to have a significantly higher amount of organic matter when they calculate organic matter percent? Well, they they calculate organic matter separately from silt. Now, when you sorry, when you send in a soil sample, is that not just a an ash that is created, and and from that uh, organic matter is is uh, determined? So, so there's there's if you ask for a textual test, they will sieve it out and tell you what percentage of these components are in your soil. Um, as far as organic matter, will they they burn off the sample and weigh it and say, okay, either through an acid or a fire, you know, I don't know, each lab does it differently. Um, then they'll say, okay, this percentage, because you lost this much weight, this percentage must have been organic matter. And to be honest with you, you know what, now that I think about it, Al, I don't think anybody kills stuff anymore. I think they just yeah. use it. And they may not, yeah. Sorry, I, I assume that there might be some combustion component to it, um, where where then you would be left with kind of an answer. So, how much yeah, so I, I think I think this leads for uh, you know a, a great experiment as to if we can find pure silt to send it into Logan and just see what happens, see how see how it comes back. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, all organic matter has mineral in it. We know that. That's why compost has such a uh, wonderful ability to fertilize. Mm -hmm. So there has to be some mineral form, a raw or, or how do I say this, molecular form in silt. 
Uh, and I'm sure all silts aren't created equally, depending on where you are in the world. Um, and and I, I know like the, the dairy farmers up in, in Vermont along the uh, Connecticut River, I mean, every spring that place floodplains flood out and when the water recedes, it leaves an amazing coating of black. It's not, I don't think it's just clay. I think it's more organic matter in, in that area. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but again, it really, it's a, it's a great question. It's a quagmire. I, I think that I'd love to see what really would happen if you kilned silt, which you would have turned to ash. And I, you know, you know, who could do it is a, a pottery place. Someone who fires clay. You know, it wouldn't be too hard for them to throw, you know, on a plate or a steel plate, whatever they do, uh, a handle of pure silt on it, run it into the kiln, cook it, and see what happens. <laughs> so, what happens when um, when organic matter breaks down to the point where it becomes silt? What? How, why does it become heavier? It becomes heavier than clay, and it it uh, become it's still lighter than than sand. It's in the middle. I, I would go back to particulate size. Yeah. So the clay platelets are a finer uh, compound, right? Because it's not just a molecule. It's a it's a it's a compound. It's it's a a cluster of like minded material. The same with silt, and and the same with the sand. So, so as the organic matter breaks down and gets closer and closer to silt, um, does it get heavier and heavier? And is there like an in-between where it's the same weight as clay? You know? It would have to break down more to become like a clay platelet. And, and again, this goes back to what we started the conversation with was that plow pan. Or hard pan layer where where it captures all of these fines that have been breaking down in the soil um because the fines always migrate like we were talking about last time where the farmer plows his field and every year he gets more and more boulders and he builds a stone wall with them so it's it's this weird intuition or weird uh dichotomy that doesn't make it's not common sense that rocks would float to the surface and that fines would migrate right it, it's it, it happens, um, you know, perhaps it's because of the disturbance um, that brings the rocks up as the fines flow down and create less space for them. Um, but, you know, these are, this is like getting into uh, yeah. so, quantum mechanics. And, okay, so I, okay, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm still with Brady and Wells here, okay? Okay, all right. I'm still, okay, like if we take, glacial rock right and then we 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 grind it a little bit now we've got glacial rock sand yep yep perhaps then we grind it more i would argue now we've got silt but have you ever seen black rock other than no no other 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 than like volcanic or black black uh yeah, basalt. Basalt, right? Uh, but that's what I'm wondering if, if then, because we can't often separate, uh, if you've got really fine silt and it's got both positive and negative attraction, it's going to attract a lot more organic matter. So it's going to bind onto a lot of organic matter. 
and that might be one of the reasons why you start seeing the anaerobic. And then if that um, uh, dust gets even ground further, then yeah, maybe because I can I can picture quartz being sand. I can picture quartz being silt, and then I can picture quartz being clay. Right, as you grind it further and further to a micron size, right, or whatever. No. All right. So if if that were the fact, why are clay platelets look like little flying saucers? Why are they not round? As you mean, because because of the grinding. Why why yeah. do they break in that in that structure? Well, why do they end up in that structure, and why are they? negatively charged around the perimeter and positively charges in the center of the, of the world. And if, if we were to break down most many, much of our clay, is it not really just aluminum silica oxide? You had to bring aluminum into this conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm turning to Tom too, because you know, he went out and harvested a lot of his own <laughs> and silt and clay. So, all right. So again, you know, none of these particulates are always going to be exactly the same yeah. content, yeah. right? Because it depends on where they where they were created by geological forces. But again, that being said, silt is a negative charge. Clay platelets have positive and negative charges. Oh yeah. So and that's where it gets complicated. That's, that's what started my whole down the rabbit hole on, on soil science of like, why are they separating by particulate size and not by specific gravity or magnetic potential? Yeah. It'd be interesting to, to, um, and I don't know the actual machine that does that, but you know, when you test paramagnetism, yep. Um, and what's the units that it's often measured in? Oh, uh, resistance i believe oh, it is, yeah it'd be interesting to, to test um sand silt and clay so well. who who does paramagnetic i mean i know guys that have have come across uh paramagnetic um ground up rock and but i don't know where they tested it yeah no i, I i'd have to learn um because you know we have a we have a mine in uh, north of where tom lives uh up in bathurst new brunswick that uh, it's a, a company called Huplasso, um, and they've got a really nice basalt rock dust, um, which to me is what I would have called silt. Um, it's so you know finely ground, but but uh, and and it'll often it'll it will settle. It's it, it'll start out as a colloid, and but over time it does settle, and you can you can see that it is. It, so it, it, we would call that like a rock flower. Yeah, it's a rock flower. Yeah. So, Av, do you think if you took straight uh, sand, straight clay, and you mixed in basalt rock dust, you would see it settle in between if you put it in a mason jar and shook it? Yeah, with a little drop of so soap. <laughs> there goes the soap. <laughs> I've had guys try both ways and they swear that the soap really has no effect one way or another, but you know, Hey, teach their own. It's not like uh, you can't try new things in different ways. Right. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's now I haven't actually tried that, but uh, that's what my assumption would be is that it would be, 
because I have seen um, the rock salt or the, the basalt rock dust um, settle out of out of suspension. So it, it doesn't it doesn't keep my water cloudy. What color is it when it settles out? It's it's a uh, oh it's white or greenish greenish white. Greenish white, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it's not it's not like a black basalt. But it was basalt that they used it, to grind. It, it was, yeah, it's kind of a grayish green. Yeah. Okay. So, so the like, rock itself, the rock itself was grayish green when it went into the crusher. No, that I can't speak to. I, I've only seen the fine powder. Okay, because true basalt is black. It's the hardest rock on the planet. As a matter of fact, our continents float on top of it. That's how dense it is. Um, and I know this from from being a stone cutter. We would always have the hardest time keeping the saw cutting straight and not throwing sparks and weaving through the stone because of the density of it. Mm -hmm. um, and when you cut it, um, it, it goes, it, the, the, the rock, uh, we call it slurry that comes off of it. The slurry is gray mm. or to clay. And we used to dump that slurry. And I, at one point in my life, I was like, you know, I bet this shit would be an amazing fertilizer. We just turned rock into this, like, you know, play platelets. Mm -hmm. And I sprayed some on my lawn and fucking sure as shit, it worked. <laughs> you got to be careful because if you spray it on like heavy, you'll kill the plants with it. But if you, you know, smart about it and get it suspended and then spray it and then water it in so it doesn't, you know, cause problems with the plants, it, it, it worked wonderfully. Uh, but yeah, these, these, these are the kinds of questions that keep me up at night, dude. <laughs> you know? Like really. So Leighton, when we met up at uh, grow up in Edmonton, I gave you a soil sample. Um, do you have time to, to um, check it out a little bit? So hang on. Oh, he's got it. I made it. I made it through with it. Oh, cool. You smuggle, so, smuggle that in. Crazy, well, crazy, crazy mites as well. <laughs> Hopefully not. So, this one's been sitting on my countertop since I got home, and I've just been like running like a madman. Yeah. But I remember you telling me there was something weird about it. Well, yeah. Like when, when I do the jar test and I shake it in water. Um, I just seem to see uh, two layers. Uh, so I kind of thought, okay, well, I don't have silt. I just have sand and clay. So I went through the trouble of, of getting pure silt and adding silt to my mix. Uh, but when we met up and you just looked at it, you kind of had a different story, a reasoning why um, we weren't seeing the silt in a jar test. Um, do you remember that? Well, that was a busy week or weekend because uh, I blew okay, in. No worries. So I don't remember the exact conversation we had. Okay. I'm just curious Hearing. if uh, if you would think that there would be silt in there because I don't see the separation. And if I send it to a lab, uh, they they tell me there's silt, you know, but that just particulate size. So what was the percentage? Do you remember? Uh, I'm sorry, Leighton. I don't remember by hand, uh, but uh, they I use uh, I used um, 
I remember that there was more silt than clay, according to the lab. Interesting. Right. And I don't see. Did you find that your your liquid turned clear relatively quickly? No, it took forever. So now, now I remember. Yeah, that's so you had a tremendous amount of of clay in it. You had micronized clay because didn't didn't you like do this for like a week or something and it still yeah. wasn't clear? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you found uh, these like black coal fossilized things in it too. Do you remember? When I was with you in in uh, yeah, yeah. You just saw a chunk and you were like, hmm, and you cracked it open and you, you showed me and it was black. I mean, there's definitely like little pebbles in here. Yeah, you actually no, I don't want to open at the show, Layton. Uh, we were sitting outside of the hotel the first night uh, when you showed up and you broke it open. And it was black and you're going, oh, that's this. Yeah, because I'm gonna I'm gonna do this again in my second flower room, and I'm just wondering if I should just use that straight soil or I should put some silt in it. Tom, um, you you originally did the horizontal system in pots as well. Yeah, I I tried uh, exactly what I was going to do in beds. I did it in a pot first did a full grow lab test, everything. Cause um, I lab tested everything I was gonna use as far as contaminants, um, but I still wanted to see what was gonna happen with a real plant, you know, what was gonna pick up. And uh, are you still using that container? No. What, what What's happening with that container? I was just wondering, would you be able to like cut into that plastic straight out and look at the horizons and see if they've been maintained or if they've been compromised? I just used it once, once one grow, it was just a seven gallon pot. And okay. unfortunately uh, it, it was in the garage for a couple months and we were laughing. We were like, this is an artifact. And uh, we just eventually got rid of it. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, Thanks, I I'm always big on doing an autopsy on 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 the uh, on the root structure and and uh, I've never I've never been able to of course look into a horizontal bed. Well, you know what I could do, man, is those big um, you'll see in the pictures. I put big cylinders going straight down my beds because I thought I was going to water through those cylinders. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I bet you I could just pull one out and we could see all the horizons and what's going on, just like that. Yeah, the only, the only problem the sand might collapse. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But that being said, you could definitely take uh, a thin-walled copper pipe and then slip it down in there, you know, to just above the e horizon or yeah, the e horizon, mm -hmm. and pull it out because you know where your your e horizon is. That's the only thing that you don't yeah. want to disturb, right. and. Uh, Ken, I found one, although I don't think you can see it, but it's called expanded shale. Oh. Yeah. You know, it has a black layer in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, we lost Ken. Yeah, no, we could see it. So, yeah, that's expanded shale, another really great material for um, 
being highly productive because it's expanded with heat. It's got a lot of cracks in it, kind of like you would look or think about uh, biochar. So the, bi the bacteria can get into those little cracks, create, you know, biofilm, create nests and break that stuff apart. It's really, really easy because it is expanded. It's, it's like another term that we use in, in rock cutting as a, as a stone carver is rotten rock versus clean rock. So whenever they're starting a quarry, um, they have to get rid of all the rotten rock on the surface. And by rotten, it's been exposed to sun and cold and heat and it, and it expands it and breaks it apart. So it, it becomes little rocks. So you have to get deep enough into the mountain or into the vein uh, before you can actually start pulling out true blocks that you can slab up that won't just fall apart or crack when you're, when you're working. So that's, that's kind of the same thing is that mother nature um, has, you know, very powerful ways of taking rock and turning them eventually into clay flavors through all these processes. But that's, that's expanded shale. So that's a good, that's a good thing. Cool. Sorry. I couldn't remember that. <laughs> that's all good. Hey, well, let's tear into your garden now. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. We got some books. That, that's, that's Ken. That was that was your yeah. cue, Ken. Bring it on. And we'll try later. I'd love to. I'd love to go live to see if it works out. But uh, I just took a bunch of pics um, half hour ago because we were struggling so much with the internet connection. Um, so yeah, here it is today. Um, you see that uh, the beds are on rolling benches, so I've got an aisle to to walk and to to work. Um. Yeah, I, I took a Let whole bunch of. Let me know when you want to go to the next picture, Tom. Yeah, yeah. Go to the next one. Yeah, there you go. That's just from above. Uh, you see, I I did the trellis with the um, the kind of classic PV, uh, PVC pipes that everybody that sort of uses gra uh, grassroots beds uses, um, but I customized it a little bit so. You see how um, <clears throat> the, those pipes like on top of the canopy, um, can you tell that where they meet, there's a, another PVC pipe that goes straight up? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yep. So I designed it. So right now I'm just um, six days in flower. So these plants are gonna minimum double, probably more than double up in size. So I don't like, um, those two PVC pipes when I, cl when I close the beds to meet together and be on top of my canopy. Cause right there, that's maybe like a good two or three inches that I can't have plants. Right. So my plants actually surpass that and I can have like a clean sea of green. Mm. Yeah. So I try to, when I design my, um, everything I do, I really try to get just every square inch, right, um, of yield that I can get. And, um, and maybe you covered a lot of this last week, and my apologies for, for being absent, but uh, do you mind yeah, uh, sharing your plant density and for this particular cultivar? E, yeah, right now um, I have, like, in, in my brain, the way I see it, I see everything as four by four. 
So ideally, I, I prefer having 16 plants per four by four, no matter what the strain, I don't care. Uh, it doesn't matter to me. Um, because what I do is I prune my plants or I top my plants in a way that I get ex the exact amount, the exact same amount of main branches as I do trellis squares. Okay. Right. So I don't care what structure the plant naturally has it. I'm just filling squares. Right. So if I can get, um, if I can get 16 plants on a four by four, then I'm dealing with, uh, three to four branch, um, plants. So it's a lot easier than having less plants topping more and trying to fill those, those squares. Right. Uh, it also reduces the veg time. So, uh, typically topping just the once. Uh, it, it really depends on how the plant reacts to a topping. Like, let's say I top it once and I get, um, two main branches going, well, then I, I'll top a second time. Uh, sometimes, you know, they're bushier. You just top it once and it gives you a whole bunch of tops. So I'll, I'll just top it once. So that's definitely, um, cultivar specific. Um, but yeah, I've done grows, uh, with, with nine per four by four, 12, 16. Um, sometimes I'll be honest with you. It depends on how the, the cloning goes like, uh, this cultivar I'm growing right now is like a super inbred S1. It's super, super finicky. It's super hard to root. Um, so right now I'm just, I'm, I'm running uh, 12 per four by four. Don't yeah. you have problems with airflow and that density? Uh, it looks a lot worse than it is right now, Leighton. Um, if we go, if we go a little further, okay. So right there, um, do you see that you can see about like right at the top of that branch, there's a node and then, um, there's two more nodes right below it. Yeah. Can you blow it up, Ken? Yeah. So right now, this is all I got going for nodes. Uh, this is day six of flower. So like I said, I'm just aiming for one branch per square of trellis. And I flip in flower with just the top node. So already six week, uh, six days in, you've got uh, three really well-established nodes. So by day 21, that branch will be full of nodes, but no side branches, right? So I can really comfortably pack a ton of branches, like I said, one per square, but they just go straight up and they stack buds. So there's no side branches. So that's just the way that I like to do it. Um, it's really, really easy on the harvest. It's really, really easy on um, the trim. And everything's just homogenous. You know, every branch is the same. Uh, and I do get a whole lot of um, airflow and problems with that. So well, first of all, let me tell you, <laughs> this grow looks fantastic, dude. Thank uh, you. Thanks. Yeah, everything's praying. Everybody's happy. Um, yeah. And I just spent the day, um, 
moving them around actually. So what I do is I, um, I'm not sure what the, what the grower term is, but I train them a lot. So I'll, I'll bend them like as much as I can before breaking them. Um, the, I do that to the taller ones. So I do that every day. I go through my canopy until it's perfectly even. Um, do you know what I mean by that technique? I'm not sure what the name is. Well, they call it training or scrogging. Some people call uh, it's, it. Well, yeah, it's training for sure, but I'm not sure if there's a particular word for really like bending it until it feels like you break it there, but you don't. Well, I'd be like super cropping it. Yeah, I guess super cropping. Yeah, but you so, wouldn't you wouldn't be super cropping too much because it's such a, the density is so perfect to these squares. Um, yeah, but still, like there's there's branches that want to be uh, higher than there's ones that want to be lower. So right. I just even everything out with that technique. Typically, I, you're taking a like a three four inch clone. Um, or. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, I'd say that's right. Three or four inch. And I'm really, I like to be really, really aggressive when I take my clone. Like I, I remove all leaves. I just leave two leaves at the top and one node. And in a standard size um, cloning tray, I do 72 clones. Fill it up. Okay. Yeah. Fill it right up. Yeah. yeah this, this one took uh, more than 10, 14 days to, to root. Like and like an e what I consider an easy uh, cultivar to root. I'll see roots popping out at day six usually for sure. Day seven, mm -hmm. this one won't show roots like it starts day fourteen. Mm. Um, yeah, so it really sucks because what happens and correct me if I'm wrong. If you have really strong mothers. Uh, you take your cuts, your cuts are full of nutrients, so they have what it takes um, to do for a while without nutrients, right? So if, you're, if your cultivar is taking 16 days to show roots, it's going to start getting efficient. Uh, so yeah, this one's a really, really challenging plant to do. Um, you know, why are we running it? It's because it hits crazy high THC. <laughs> And it's a hype strain. Yep. It's like the new trends. You know? And you, you pheno hunted this? I pheno hunted it. Yeah, it's it's an S1 of the breeder cut cap junkie, it's called. Mm -hmm. Right. So I don't know if it has to do with an S1. Mm -hmm. Like I've ran super healthy S1s. I've ran super healthy feminized seeds. But this one is, um, you know, it's a healthy plant, but it's slow. I vegged it for two more weeks than usual. Um, it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> it's making you work your ass off is what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, what, what's what's going on is I've done um, a ton of pheno hunting over the last two years. And um, the company that I work with... Uh, they they took oh, i think so far like seven or eight of my cultivars and registered skews so that means that set eight i think it's seven cultivars have retail space okay they're on the shelves and they have a demand so there's multiple growers um 
growing for the team. I'm just one of them. And um, I can kind of decide which of those seven cultivars that are, I run. So right now what I'm doing is I'm just running them all and I'm seeing what I like, what, what I like to run, what I don't. And I'm hoping to settle with, with the best one, you know. So I thought you originally said S1 or F1, but you're, you're saying S1. S1, yeah. So, yeah, it's a self-pollinated, like, feminized. Do you know what it is, an S1? Yes, now I do. I, but I thought I heard F1. So you had me confused, but I didn't ask the question. So yeah, but that so makes a lot of sense. One. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm doing the bottomless uh, pot tech. Um I'm using really small pots because of the space constraint I have in my uh, bedroom. So those are actually like three and a half inch by three and a half inch. Uh, and as you can see, I just like uh, on the right is the old one. On the left is the new one, just right side by side. I let it tap right into the rhizosphere of the last one. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Yeah. And that really, really works out. I mean, whether it's 600, whether it's 800 cuts that we have to uh, transplant, we do it crazy fast. So eventually, holes. eventually you can just pull that other pot right out of there, the one in front. In right? no time. In no time. And then yeah, you yeah. in that place next time. I love yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Rip this that off from, uh, from Green Life there, <laughs> like everybody else. This is how you do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. So as you can see, like I've got random cover crops going. Um, I haven't planted much. It's just things that naturally came with the soil. Um, a lot of things were, were wild crafted. So came with a lot of seeds, I guess. Uh, plus all my components for my beds sat outside for like a good four months so you know i'm sure it got inoculated with a with, with a bunch of different things so that is the actual spectrum that i'm running um the other the other uh pictures looked more quote unquote normal so this run i'm trying something different like i have full spectrum control on these leds and i wanted to go with something warmer um, just for fun, to be honest with you, just to see what happens. But I wanted to go a lot closer to HBS because a lot of these breeder cuts, I think, are are bred under HBS. And I just wanted to see what would happen. But when you feed yeah. this one, did, did it not stretch quite a bit? Uh, this one doesn't stretch too much. And that's one of the reasons why I'm trying to go. Uh, I pulled down the um, the far red the 720 nanometers and i pushed it with more uh 60 660 nanometers instead and i'm going with a warmer temperature too to see if i can make it stretch and stack a little bit more okay. uh, the other uh thing that i did too is usually what i do is um I, I think it's called the phytochrome and the cryptochrome. So phytochrome is in the morning. And um, so phytochrome, is it morning, Av, Layton? Uh, cryptochrome is more your dark, um, 
you collect you collect more cryptochrome during dark periods. Okay, so is, that like, is that like far blue have? I'm not. I'm not actually not sure about that. We'll we'll need to get John here to to do the lighting talk. Yeah. There you go. So anyway, what I did, um, I, I run a, a lot of really stretchy uh, clones. This particular one, like I said, it's not really stretchy. But for stretchier clones, uh, I start my morning uh, very blue, and I make it a sunrise. So it gradually comes more and more and more intense. And um, at, as it gets later in the day, I let it go warmer, um, warmer spectrum. And then I do a sundown, which eventually falls to far red only. So 720 nanometers, and then it goes to, to total darkness. So for this one, again, to try to encourage the stretch, um, I'm not doing the blue at the in the morning. So it starts really like HBS style right away. It ramps up for an hour and then I just run it full blast. Do you allow the temperature to adjust during the day? Like do you let it get warmer in the room during the day and then cool it off? No, no. Uh, I, I try to really keep it the same night and day just because correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like it's safer for all kinds of things like for botrytis for powdery mildew um i always had that thought and matter of fact i don't know if it's on the soil matter or maybe it was like a call we had with dragonfly earth medicine that they 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 said the same thing as I always had the impression, like you really got to try to maintain your temperature, humidity as close to the same as possible during nighttime and daytime. Would you agree with that? You would, especially if you're trying to control the stretch. I mean, one of the reasons why we would recommend daytime and nighttime being the same would be to control the stretch. Okay. So if you wanted the opposite, if you wanted to see a stretch, I could see you going as low as 75 because i never like to go below 75 because that is typically kind of that sweet spot where powdery mildew kind of can take hold so okay. keeping your maybe your nighttime at 75 and your daytime getting up to 85. Um, i'd be comfortable with that that's not a big that's not a big swing you, you might see more inner node expansion and i'll be honest with you av like when i say that i keep it the same it probably goes down to around 75 and I run it like 82, 83 during the day. So you're almost doing it already. <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. 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 Especially it kind of does it on its own because it's nighttime and a lot less equipment is running. So, you know, no matter what, it drops down a couple degrees. So hey, uh, Ken, can you tag uh, Banna? Canna at 5.36 p.m. So I can answer that question at the end. Cool. Yeah, that's just a little okay. stupid picture. Like, uh, like that's a corner of my room. I don't know if you can see, but we added like an aluminum plate uh, that just like, uh, we try to get that, um, uh, how, how would I say that, that stream going all around the room, uh, airflow wise. So it just kind of helps, oh, yeah. uh, the airflow. Yeah. So you, get, you, you have like that S curve of, of 
airflow. Yeah, like one one side of my room, all fans push the air at um, at the same direction, mm -hmm. and on the other side, opposite direction. So we just try to kind of create a jet stream to just mix the air round and round and round, right? So to be honest, that's just a fancy thing we tried. Like, I'm not sure if it actually does anything. So is that to prevent stagnation in the corner? Is that where yeah. that is? Yeah, exactly. Yep. Very cool idea. Totally. Yeah. So, yeah, that's just like, can you see Layton? Like, there's just like top, 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 top. Yeah. Uh, it's not, you know, there's airflow going. Yes. Yeah. yeah and, and that's I just... That's just a very, very warm spectrum giving that effect. Like there's zero deficiencies going on. That's for sure. Yeah. Okay. And this is like, so I got my, uh, my belt, my bed, um, you know, custom made. So you see, I gave myself a couple inches there. So if I want to water, you know what I mean? If I want to water my E-Horizon, you see it. Um, and it's on classic style rolling benches, uh, just totally custom built, um, way, way stronger than your typical brown stuff you see there is just TM7 residue. Too cool, buddy. Too yeah, cool. Yeah. Next. Hey, hold on. I got to go back to the other end all the way, so... Here, zip through. Ken, did you hear me talking, telling you to tag a certain comment? Um, yeah, uh, yeah, Barna Kana, he's got uh, actually three questions uh, for you to answer in a bit. Okay, perfect. Do you see the PVC pipes like join, like, um, when they join together, like? If it would go right on top, you see how it would cause a problem that I can't have plants there? So that's why I put that like five-way joining thing and then I um, I extended it. And you can just keep going on top of that too. Yeah, exactly. So if I wouldn't have all those PVC pipes, um, it just it just wouldn't be strong enough to hold trellis really tights and really heavy buds, heavy plants. So when you when you say they stack, how how tall are you stacking these things? Like um, 20, what do you 20, mean now, the plants? Yeah, like that. No, I mean the the buds at the top, the tops. How like well, are you? Well, you see, there's six days in flower right now. Um, so they'll have buds uh, right at the top where, where you see, but they'll keep stacking buds until they surpass um, the top of the, the very top of that PVC pipe there. Like they'll, they'll, they'll keep stacking bud for another at least 18 inches. Wow. Yeah, right there. Like they'll, they'll surpass that a couple inches, I'd say. So that's your next level of trellising so that they don't yeah. fall over on top. yeah exactly i'll i'll put like a, at least two more um layers of trellis there do you notice how the light rows on the perimeters are lower 
than yes. in the middle. And matter of fact, the middle row is the, um, the highest. Do you notice that? Yeah, I did. I picked up on that right away. What was your thinking on that? Yeah, so I designed everything with a light meter. So what happens with, with your row uh, on the perimeter, it doesn't have the advantage to be joining with uh, the other rows, right? It just, have, it just has light from uh, the second row joining in with the perimeter row. So uh, that the perimeter row is disadvantaged. So I lower it a little bit closer to the plants uh, to make up for that. Another thing that I do, um, if you look at the bottom of the row, the very last light on yeah, each drop row, I drop it down too. Because think of that corner, for example, the very corner is very disadvantaged, right? Right there. So I drop it down as much as I need to, to be as close uh, PPFD wise as I can to the rest of the canopy. You know, so I don't want like hot spots of lights and- And are you running all of your lights at 100%? Uh, right now, yeah. 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 Right now, um, I'm really, really trying to push them. Uh, I like to ramp up intensity as I go deeper in flower. Um, but this grow, man, I just like, like the first two days of flower, I still go easy because I don't want to shock them from veg to flower. So in, in veg, I like to run maybe like 300 PPFDs. I don't like to go too intense. I find that it stresses them. Um, but, uh, so yeah, like for, for the first two days, I just pushed in maybe like 500 PPFD and then right now they're at, uh, 800. You see, that's my first light right there. And it's about maybe give or take, uh, five, six inches lower than the next one. So that's, that's really done with a light meter. It's not just guessing and shit. You're a state of the art, my friend. That is for sure. This is Thanks, amazing. Man. Another amazing. thing that I really like to do is you don't really notice it in the canopy right now because it all evens out. But um, across my perimeter, I pick my strongest, tallest uh, plants. And I and if I top everything twice, like usually I top everything twice, I just top them once. And I really try to encourage them to be bigger than the rest of the plants. And that comes from my basement days when you, you're just running one light and you try to create a bowl around that light to really maximize what you're doing. You know what I mean? Because again, if you go around a light, say an HBS, which I used uh, in my basement with a light meter, you really notice that the peak intensity isn't just you know, a horizon, it's, it, it's not just flat, it really goes into a bowl. Um, so I kind of apply the same technique with a big canopy like this. Um, because again, even though I drop my lights at the perimeter to make up for, for less intensity, it is still, still a little bit less intense. And um, if those plants at the perimeter 
ever get dominated by plants that are more in the middle, then you really see a you really see a drop in your perimeters. So if I start off with plants that are a couple inches taller on the perimeter, um, um, since they're a little bit disadvantaged with a little bit less light, they usually end up being completely um, level instead so, of instead of dropping down. So do you, you bowl them in in veg and then you let them go crazy and flower and even back out? Yeah, like basically in veg, you really see like the bowl effect okay. in my canopy. Okay, and when I flip them and flower, um, since since the taller ones pretty much have the same light intensity as the the more middle ones, since they have just one row of light uh, blaring on them. Um, long story short, it just turns out even. But if I wouldn't do that, in my experience, you would see uh, the perimeters go lower and you would those those plants on the perimeter, you would lose a lot of yield. And by a lot, I'm not talking about tremendous amounts, but hey, if I can pull two kilos more out of this room um, using those those um, little tricks, well, five grows a year two kilos, 10 kilos a year. Thank, thank you very much. I'll take it. Right. And I seriously think that I'm doing, I'm achieving that. God, it's very impressive what you've come up with so far and on scale like this too. This is, yeah, uh, it comes straight from basement growing, but you know, um, that right there, I wanted to show that. So the way that I built uh, those PVC pipes to hold the trellis um, my, my tables are four feet wide, but like I said, I made my, uh, grassroots beds, uh, custom made a little, uh, bit more narrow. So you can see in between the beds, you've got like six, six inches, right? So if I had those PVC pipes just going straight up instead of having, um, a four foot wide canopy, which standard trellis comes four foot wide, uh, I'd be losing on at least a, a square of trellis. So I'd have a, I wouldn't have a, as wide of a, a canopy on each bench. So this way, the way that I install those PVC pipes, uh, it gives me a couple of inches on both sides so I can get my full uh, four foot wide trellis so do those swing out yeah they swing out exactly wow yeah yeah too cool i didn't i i, I when you can first put it up i'm like what is this you see you see it swing out right there yeah. i put like two 90s it took me so much cutting pvc pipe time to do this it was insane but look at how well it works. So, oh, so basically, yeah. when you open them up, it tightens up the trellis a little bit too. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it just like the the bed is like four foot wide minus I think five inches. So these this way, I'm gaining my five inches. Beautiful. Does that make sense? Yes. Spot on. Yeah.
So you can see I just chopped and chopped and dropped uh, yesterday. So it's decomposing really fast. Uh, that's one of those pipes that goes right to the bottom, um, which was a great idea from you. I think I misinterpreted what it's for. You know, this is it, it, this is very it's worth having if you if you're in a tent and you don't have your setup like me where your your plastic tray goes further and you can see the water. Um, so you have a little technique with a little floater that you see see it go up and down and you can tell how much water is in your e-horizon. Um, I took that idea and I had my idea was to water in that um, in that cylinder and water straight into the e-horizon. E but I mean, with benches that are perfectly level, I just have to water right at the end of that tray and it perfectly spreads throughout the whole tray, the whole bed. So yeah, it's kind of useless. Well, I don't think it's useless, uh, but you know what? This, this brings up a point. When we were all together at Grow Up, I remember having the conversation. I don't know if you were at the table or not, Av, but I was explaining to someone um, the water storage capacity of sand. It's kind of, it's, it's crazy. It, it defies uh, reality. And so basically the experiment goes, you fill a bucket of sand, three quarters full, add water till you, till the water comes to the surface of the sand, push down your hand, compact the sand, and there should be just a little bit of water where your fingerprints were. Drop, dump that out, just dump a little bit off the top so the bottom of your finger, you can't see any water in the sand. And then take that bucket on a tarp, flip it upside down, smack it so it creates a sand castle. Watch how long it takes for the moisture to get out of the middle of that sand. It'll, it'll blow your mind. And this goes into the next conversation we're going to have because uh, Tom and I were talking about drybacks and how difficult they are in this type of system. But then you get into understanding. I'm not saying let it dry out. I'm just saying let it let it dry back in, mm -hmm. in to cause stresses. But that test will show you the fact that even if you think you're dry, dried out, <laughs> You're not going to dry out for days. <laughs> like you watch that sandcastle slowly evaporate, right? And I'm talking evaporate, right? And and there's still you poke a hole in it, there's still going to be moist in the middle. Yeah, I find that the plants really uh, suck out an impressive amount of of water, though. And I wouldn't have thought this, but in veg, like maybe two weeks after planting clones. I see roots popping out of the E horizon. They go straight through the, the O, the A, and into the E, into that rock and sand, and go right to the, to the, um, the plastic tray. It's pretty crazy. And that's, yeah. that's a clone, so it's not even a yeah. Pops out of the beds like a little, like, six-inch plant already down there. <laughs> that's amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. So I see, okay, right there. So that's my E horizon. Um, it looks maybe kind of blackish in the picture. It, to me, it's really like healthy looking colors in my interpretation. Oh, you see roots right there. See yeah, that? There it is. Yeah. 
Um, and um, if I if I soak my E horizon from the bottom, I clearly see water, um, you know, through through the through the fabric. And I'd say 24 hours of not watering it, like it might be still wet inside, but it's clearly dry on the outside already. So is the top, see where his little hand is? That's the top of the tray, correct? Um, yeah, yeah, that's the tray right there, yeah. And, and so in, in the, the instructions for designing this, the E-Horizon is supposed to be a little bit taller than the top of your tray or your liner. And the reason why, yeah, you, you don't want to have um, the A horizon ever sitting in in water because it will obviously go anaerobic. So for sure, um, it's interesting that the roots popping out looks like almost at the same level as the as the tray top. Is is that correct or is it going? Yeah, going that's down? on that's on top of the tray. But if you go like if you'd go at the end of the table, yep. uh, you can see that roots really go right down to the end, right down to the bottom. Oh yeah, that's impressive. Yep. Yeah, totally. If you go a little further, then you'll see. Uh, oh, I just wanted to show there, like where I'm at, like six days in, how many nodes, and it's it's really impressive. If you go rate to 25, how much that node stacks. And I've tried like I've tried going to flower with different amounts of nodes. And I just always regret, and I always go back to super, super aggressive, uh, just one node per branch. I go as aggressive as I can. If Okay, there you go. So that's my little float switch. Um, so you see, like, it turns the water off uh, before it could ever surpass the E-Horizon anyway. Love it. Fucking love it. Yeah. And, you know, for me, I know you're a little skeptical and I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the irometer and I'm gonna work with drybacks and I'm gonna try different things. But for me, it works really, really well to just water from the E horizon. Yeah. There's no reason why you can't. It's dry farming. Like we talked yeah. about last time. Yeah. Concept. Now this is, this is really impressive. Like all the times we talked, <clears throat> I've never had the opportunity to, to get into this place and really see what you've done. So, you know, yeah, yeah. you're beyond yeah. next level, brother. So, so when you, when you're, um, if you uh, put your finger into the top two to four inches of, of, of the top of your soil, do you still find it moist? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I do, you know, I, I do treat it with logic. So at least once or twice a week, I turn off my bottom watering and I give it a light top watering. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Do you use, uh, are you using any teas or anything like that? Zero. No. no because again, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, I'm, I'm just the student here. But uh, the way I see it is I inoculated at first. I inoculated at each horizon with fish brew. And then I sent soil samples. Fish brew in Canada. Was that? If you could get fish brew in Canada, you would have. 
Yeah, yeah, but you can figure things out. Um, and then, um, you know, I, uh, I inoculated each horizon, um, before I started any grow and after a whole grow, I sent a soil sample to, uh, Andy and she gave me, uh, a very, very good grade on soil health, soil, soil biology. So it worked out. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that being said, okay, so I'll, I'll come back to the biology in a second. So I have four beds. I have four of those floating switch switches. So when a, a switch calls for water, one of those things, uh, activates the pump and just waters that bed. So I'm not sure, like this is probably standard hydro type of equipment. Layton, I can't hear you. It, it's a solenoid that's commonly used in uh, everything from domestic water use to, uh, you know, certain types of boilers to, you know, add water when the water steams off. So, yeah, it's, it, but again, dude, you've really, you know, you've really engineered this very well. Uh, not, not your typical, you know, very well thought out, but not your typical canvas grow i've been into some really crazy big facilities but they have never gotten close to this kind of tech and you know everything from your lighting to your parameters to your rolling beds to the horizons i mean you just you've really dialed this whole concept in so Thanks, man. It's, and it's a working progress too like um uh i'm always adjusting a little bit little bit like you see those those um, ducking pipes up there. So I just installed that. So I, I ducked my dehumidifiers. Um, I'm always uh, on the quest to get as perfect um, atmospheric dis distribution as I can. Like, um, like you see all those fans on the ceiling, like I just try, try, try to get exactly the same everywhere. It's really hard. Well, it looks like you've accomplished it, my friend. Yeah. I didn't even notice those little blue units. Those are like, those are powerful little units. Yeah. Yeah. And then just below it, another level of an oscillating fan. So very cool. And now what is the yeah. program? Uh, that's, uh, that's actually Av's recommendation. And, um, it's supposed to filter out uh, just it's mold a, particles and bacteria and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it's a multi-ionic, uh, so just um, having air, it'll actively pull in air and and then and uh, send out charged particles to bind onto dust and pathogens and and essentially uh, uh, either kill them or weigh them down. So that's an ozone generator. It doesn't actually generate really. ozone. Uh, I mean, it, it it may generate minute amounts of ozone, but not detectable. Wow. Uh, but uh, yeah, some uh, definitely things that uh, we we feel like um, can help reduce pathogen issues. Um, still not not sure about uh, if it does impact terpenes. So that's I'm I'm always uh, wondering how people are doing with terpenes and and you know. Tom, Tom has no issues with those. He's yeah, 
no, and it's it's hard to say like what it does. Like doing side by sides, it's almost impossible. Uh, you know, does it really help with yeast and mold and stuff like that? Um, uh, um, I just want to try like everything I can do for prevention, prevention, prevention. I do yeah, it. Yeah. So yeah. it's way better. It's way easier to prevent shit than fight it. Exactly. Right now, right there, I, I took a picture of that. So we installed, um, you see that ducking up there. So that co comes right from outside. It's got, uh, I think it's a Merv 13 filter to filter the air coming from outside. And then maybe the next picture is my filtered exhaust. Um, yeah, right there. So uh, different reasons why I want to exhaust. Like mostly it's all closed loop. I'd say the biggest thing that I use that for is let's say my AC would go down or my dehumidifiers or something. And I'd have to just take air from outside to deal with, with that problem until I, I fix my AC. Um, it's a, another prevention thing. Like I, I honestly hardly use it. What are your thoughts on that guys? Like, so, so I, that's a fresh air makeup. Or that's the filter for the fresh air. No, that's the that's the filter filter to exhaust the air outside. Okay, and to the prevent other smell was my intake. Yeah. Okay, so is that to prevent smell? Exactly. Yeah, it's a carbon filter. Nice. Uh, yeah. Do you have neighbors that would complain? Not really. No, we're really like surrounded by forest, and uh, neighbors are pretty far away. Um, so I don't think so, but I want to take chances. Yep. No, I think that's a great idea. I mean, and it's, it's in the regulations too. You have to show how you mitigate smell issues. So that's how. Cause I, I just was reading an article about Santa Barbara, which is half an hour north of me and they've become, um, the largest cannabis, uh, county in California, they overtook, well, we know why they overtook, uh, Humboldt, Mendocino, and I think it's Trinity, uh, because they've put all the farmers out of business up there. But um, they have huge, huge complaints about the smell. Um, and even when you drive along the 101, it, it, it smells like someone's just fired up right in front of you. But then you get back into the hills and it's even crazier. And that's exactly what they could do to mitigate it. Um, why they don't, I don't know, but it's a big on. thing when you apply for the license, you really have to show the government, like, how are you going to deal with that? Well, very cool. So uh, back to your question about fresh air makeup. What, so where were you going to go with that? Yeah. Uh, I remember like first time I ever spoke to you, like maybe four years ago, you told me to flush my room like five, five times a day, uh, to get fresh air in. Do you still stand by that advice? Because I actually hooked up my exhaust on a timer. So I could do that, but it's balancing the waste of CO2 that I'm injecting in my room and getting fresh air. Like, do you, do you guys see any benefit from, from fresh air? Are there, are, are there gases other than CO2 that my, my plants are taking up that I should be replenishing? That's a great question, dude. I'm, I've always been a proponent of 
fresh air because of CO2 buildup. But you're kind of trying to keep the CO2. Oh, I, I inject CO2 big time. Right. So then in that in that environment, you kind of don't want to flush as often as I suggested. Um, but I still think that a certain percentage of fresh air um, would be a benefit. And it's kind of like what I learned about aquaculture. We have what's called water brightening. So even though we're a closed loop system, recirculating uh, aquaculture system where we take the water from the tank, clean it, scrub it, filter, and put it back in, um, we do usually recommend adding 5% fresh water daily to, to maintain the balance of nutrients in the water. And I got to believe that there may be something to that with, with what your question is, is like what other gases in the air might be beneficial to the plant. We may be going again in a, a place nobody's ever really spent any time thinking about. Like, you know, the other, there's plenty of other gases in, in the air. Um, Do plants take up other gases than CO2? If the plants don't, the biology does. Mm, true that. Good point. Well, we, we, we even know that plants can take up nitrogen um, through, through their stomata right after a lightning strike, right? So nope, because they're charged. Yeah. But, but he's got a little ionizer. Well, it's not an ionizer, but is it charging the air particles? Yeah, it, it, it is an ionizer, but it's not creating that much ozone. Okay. Yeah, it's a multi-ionic, uh, yeah. It's a, base, a company based out of California. So, you know, again, like, what if you ran fresh air through that? <laughs> would, it, would the stomite, uh, stomites uh, be able to pick up that energized nitrogen because it now has a positive or negative charge? And, and let's, let's not even talk. We, I mean, there's so many other gases that are out there that are mixed in, in, in our atmosphere um, and probably some, you know, what you want to call exotics uh, that are on the periodic table, but they got to be happening. I mean, they're here, right? So th these, that's a great question, man. I wonder too about exhausting during the nighttime, because if you're, um, if your room is really well sealed up, CO2 builds up big time, big time. So I don't know if guys, growers are, are exhausting that CO2 at night. Have you heard of that, uh, Av? Um, well, I mean, yeah, with, in a living soil system, you must be getting close in with beds, you must, and with a cover crop, you must be getting over 800 PPM of CO2 without injecting. Oh no. Like it, it, it drops in no time to, well, for some because, reason, that's maybe. Because you're doing, are you doing, um, how many air exchanges are you doing per hour? Zero. Oh, so you're not doing any air exchange? Okay, so where where are your CO2 sensors? Uh, in the middle of the room, but I've I've tested many different places. Mm -hmm. uh, I've added a second sensor too to see if I'm mixing my CO2 well, yep. and I am mixing it very well. In your um, what's what's your ambient CO2? Well, uh, like what I run it, like right now I'm running it at 1500 PPMs, usually 1200 to be honest, but I just said, Hey, why not push it this time? Right. And, so, and sorry. And you're running that 20, uh, lights on lights off. Well, no, not, and that's what I'm saying. Like, 
Um, actually, on my um, the program that I use to to control all, all my parameters, uh, on my CO2 sensor, there's a light sensor. Okay, so when it senses that it's night period, it stops injecting CO2 no matter what. And as soon as lights go off, CO2 starts going way up because uh, plants are transpiring CO2, right? What did it fall down to before it starts up again? Well, okay, so what happens is the whole day I keep it at 1500. Let's say my tank would run out as it does uh, just in a couple hour, hours. It goes from 1500 to about 150. And that's a question I had for you guys is it drops down to about 150 ppms really quick, really impressive. Um, and it just stays there. So it's as if that when there's just 150 ppms of CO2, which is unnatural, they just kind of stop taking it up. Is that possible? Well, have you ever measured underneath the plant to see if the soil is generating more and that the plant's taking it up and therefore it's uh, not? It weird? could be. You no, know, my sensor is on top of the canopy, so I could, I could try that out. Um, definitely the soil um, uh, releases CO2. There's no doubt. So I see that um, in when I, when I put small clones in there, for example, okay, I do not need to add CO2. Uh, matter, in matter of fact, I flush the room once in a while because it just builds too much. It hits like 2,500, 3,000 ppm, so I'll flush it. Um, but as soon as the, the plants start gaining some vigor, you really see the, the CO2 come down. So it's like I said, like in, in full flower, when they're really giving her, let's say I'm running uh, 1,500 part per million of CO2, my tank runs out, it, it, you see the graph. It just goes down to 150 um, really fast in a matter, matter of a couple of hours. And then it stays at 150. And yeah, I just always wonder, awesome. why does it just stay there? Why doesn't it just go to zero? So uh, how, do, how do the plants react when during that crash? Do they stop you growing? You can't tell, you know, you can't, you can't tell visually. It's not like they start wilting or they do anything like that. Um and I don't let it go too long. Like I'm on top of it and I notice it. Like if I see my CO2 going down, 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 oh, I switch the tank up, you know? So uh, yeah, in a couple hours, it'll go from 1,500 uh, uh, to 150 really fast. Um, and then as soon, the minute the lights go off, you see the graph CO2 going up. And they start transpiring all night, all night. They don't stop. It just goes straight up until lights on. And the minute that lights turn on, uh, turn on, you see the CO2 come down, 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 down. And it'll stop going down when it reaches 1500. And then my system just automatically keeps it at 1500. Is there, Ev, is there a level of toxicity or stress at certain point with having that many parts per million in the, in the air? Uh, I mean, I, I think the, the nice part 
that Tom's doing, he's also got his lights at a higher PPFD. And, and of course, there's probably more than ample nutrients and, and water. So all the other ingredients to photosynthesis are, are all, also high. So you're just going to be photosynthesizing at a much higher rate. It's, it, I'm just surprised at the rapidity. Like typically, if you're, if you're going from veg where you might have 700 ppm and you, and you jump to 1500 ppm, that's where, that's where you'll typically see some, some deficiencies because there's just not enough phosphorus to move the magnesium and the magnesium gets used up too quickly. And then, then you, you typically see magnesium deficiencies, which are probably more of a phosphorus deficiency. Um, so that's the only time where you'd see, I typically see toxicity is when you jump from like 700 to 1500 in like a day. Um, I'm just surprised that, that it goes down that quickly. And that's why I was wondering, is your room really, do you feel like it's incredibly tight or do you have leaks or? Uh, you, it's pretty damn tight. Yeah, it does. It does it in both rooms. Okay. Um, and I mean, if it wasn't that tight, <laughs> you would think that it would stop at like 400, right? Yeah, Just, that's, that's your typical ambient. But I, I could see it yeah. going below 400 because because you've got so many plants that are hungry. Yeah. Uh, no, and it's weird. Like it stalls at 150 also. Yeah. Which is really that's, weird. Yeah. 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 You'd think um, it'd go down to zero. When uh, when you built the rooms, did you do blower door tests? No. Nah. Okay. You know what those are, right? I can imagine. Maybe well, explain to me. It, well, they either put it in a positive or negative charge, uh, and they're pushing air into the room or pulling it out. It okay. depends on what they're trying to test for. Mm -hmm. A lot of really, really high-end um, fancy houses, they'll do this uh, once they've sealed the envelope to make sure that the roofers did all the right flashing because they'll put it under tremendous negative pressure and then in, in the middle of a rainstorm or supplement the rain on the outside with hoses. So they yeah. make sure that all of the corners and cracks are sealed. So I, I was like tripping out for like a grow and a half trying to figure out what was going on. So my old room was building up way more CO2 at night than my new room. And I was like, what's going on with this because first of all i've i've heard from reputable growers that if you grow the same cultivar okay and you look at your nighttime co2 transpiration um the more transpiration you have you can really gauge your yield okay based on the same cultivar, same room, same everything, everything, everything. So I was running the same cultivar in in both rooms. And one room, the CO2 uh, went much lower uh, at night than the other one. Um, so I did all of these tests. Like, first of all, I thought that maybe... Um, my my co2 uh wasn't going all around my room homogeneously uh maybe i had like hot, hot spots of co2 and really low spots and therefore um I, I, my plants were transpiring less co2 at night but anyway what it what it ended up ended up being is that i guess my my back door going to my water room isn't perfectly sealed. It looks sealed, but I guess it isn't. 
and I have a drain going outside in that water room. And when I plugged that drain, sure enough, I saw my CO2 go up significantly at night. So that was my one air escape. Mm. Just that, man. Well, hopefully you don't break any pipes in that water room. <laughs> no. Why do you say that? Well, because it'll flood, right? If something breaks in there, it doesn't have a floor. Oh, true that, yeah. But that being said, there are doors that are super, uh, like triple sealed. They use them in um, like psychiatrist offices where mm -hmm. you cannot have any noise getting from one office to the other, but yet you do have a doorway there. Yeah. It's, well, it's I'll be honest with you. Like we do everything on a budget there, uh, everything by ourselves. And we built that door with trust score by ourselves. So it's probably not, it's not perfectly sealed. Let's be honest. Well, maybe so there's I'll upgrade. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's water sensors called water bugs. Um, you could always just get one of those and put it on the floor. I right? have, I have yes. one. There you go. So you got your ass covered. So if something happens, you can get there before it turns into a yeah. total show. Yeah, yeah. You see that picture? Like you like that moss? I do. I love it. That's yeah. that oh, see the you see the the roots poking out? Yeah. yeah. Nice. So nice. they they poke out more in veg, I find, and when they realize that there's nowhere to go, they stop. Mm. Yep. Slough off. It's called root uh, air, air air pruning, right? Yeah, the term for it. Yeah. So but again, it looks kind of blackish on the picture, but it doesn't in real life at all. It's just a, like a nice brown. Um, let's talk about chop and drop because I know Av uh, has concerns with that, and you did as as well, and we talked about that. So um, yeah. he's seeing that the the actual plant matter is getting consumed incredibly quickly. It's not being built up very long. Do you feel comfortable with that, Av, that, that the decomposition is happening quicker? I mean, that, that was why I asked if he was using any teas because uh, they look like they're, they're, you know, if you did a chop and drop just yesterday, it, there's, there's some significant breakdown. So I thought you oh, might yeah. have. Oh, yeah. This is incredible. Yeah. My first two grows, I was scared. I didn't chop and drop, to be honest. So it's the first time I start chop and dropping. Yeah. Uh, and I'm doing it slowly and just seeing what happens. So I think there's two two main things going on uh, compared to pots. Um, there's a lot more surface area uh, on a bed, mm -hmm. right? So I'm not getting like two inches of friggin' chop and drop. Um, and the other thing is I assume that I have better thriving life and um, it, it just really so far it decomposes really really fast i'm gonna really wash it in flour though and and no uh no issues with heavy metals um uh lately with your with your flour well i've been i've been testing a lot um i've been running like test phenos and that's the big enigma going on with these beds is out of five phenos i've been getting ultra low uh heavy metals lower than i've ever had in very controlled potting soils 
that still had very low metals. Um, but this one weird ass cultivar picks up um, fairly high, like not dangerously high or nothing, but a lot higher. Like we're talking this pheno picks up seven times more cadmium than other phenos. Than well, four other phenos, and I'm retesting and I'm sending it to different labs just to make damn sure that this is valid. That, so, would, be, that would be one pheno if you choose that pheno and choose to grow it out, then I would be careful doing a chop and drop. Okay, well, your thoughts, Leighton, because we've had this conversation. And, and use more T7, I'd use or or uh, was yeah. that sorry, and use more T7. Or um, any TM7. TM7, yeah. TM7. But but Layton was telling me, and I don't I don't know your thoughts on that, uh, Av. But when when you do chop and drop, uh, you can explain it, Layton. But he explained to me like on a molecular level what's going on. And let's say you're pulling arsenic, you're not necessarily putting back arsenic in. Not so. The theory is, and you know, again, this you get into these biogeochemical reactions and you're going to have everybody giving you a different answer. Right. But the people that I've worked with about this, and, and this is coming from bioremediation, um, is that when you um, are using biology to break things down and the plant is breaking these things down, it's pulling it up and spreading it out throughout their plant. And as the plant disintegrates and goes back into silt, <laughs> dare I say. <laughs> um, that cadmium, for the most part, or whatever has been pulled up, is now been redistributed on a molecular level, both within the bacteria themselves, but broken down to a, a finite point that it's not going to be detectable. In other words, the plant's not going to pull up everything that it put out and and the reason i say this is because in these bioremediations where they're uh cleaning up different toxins the the plant has broken things down to uh individual molecules and not like uh like a mineral pocket of of the you know whether it's a cadmium a chromium arsenic whatever that's in a that's in a uh, mineral form but when the when it's gone through a biological digestion is probably the best way to say it it's no longer um as of that much of a concern in other words it's not going to just keep coming back keep coming back keep coming down you've you've broken it apart you you've you've uh you've taken the ability of the the next precipitant part, part uh, the next plant in line the next thing that grows there from pulling it up at the same concentrations that the one before did. Does that make sense? I mean, that's that's the foundation of bioremediation is how do you pull up this stuff, break it down, make it so that it's non, uh, a non uh, problem uh, or not, it's not, it's not a, it's no longer a problem. It's just a back to its mineral organic state. I don't know. I don't know how better to try to explain this, but it's, it's complex as fuck. But I mean, these guys are doing it with these plants and they're not like taking the plants and burning them. They're just composting them on the site. And then they come back and retest 
the levels have gone down. Do they have to repeat? Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. It just depends on the parts per million allowed by either the EPA or the contractor or the contract. Now, typically with bioremediation, would you not harvest the plant and remove that plant from, from that area? No, no. no you just, you're doing a chop and drop in a bioremediation. Drop, chop and drop, pile it up, turn it into compost, spread it around. Mm-hmm. And the parts per million go down. Yeah. But that being said, like backing up to, to Tom's scenario where say say the, the cadmium had built up in the bud, would it be building up equally in the leaves themselves have? I, I, and that's one of the reasons why some, some folks uh, recommend using uh, silica uh, or silicic acid even in in soils is that there's been studies where it shows how heavy metals, although they may be taken up by the roots, will get uh, lower translocation rates into flower or into fruit um, if there's ample amounts of silicic acid. So, and we know that Tom has high levels of bioavailable silica based on the input that he put in that we talked about earlier, but we're not going to talk about. So that being said, I didn't realize that that was uh, one of the uh, um, active ingredients in in that product. What's that? Uh, The diatoms. Yeah, I did. Oh, the fish brew. Yeah, the the diatoms that live in the fish brew are are just incredible um, as far as their ability to survive. I mean, I've gone back to jobs two years later and I still find diatoms in the soil profile if I, if I scope it. So I know that they are inoculating the soils. Andy laughs at me and we should give Andy a plug. Andy is from Andy Marsh from Rhizos uh, dot science. Um, she's a wonderful soil food web graduate and has her own lab for a couple of years now, really making a go of it and a great name for herself. Um, I, I tend to think she's off tough on me at times, but that's okay. I'd rather I'd rather have a real honest, straight answer than I would somebody, you know, fluffing me up. So um, she laughs. She goes, oh, I immediately know that you've been playing with fish brew when I see the sample <laughs> because those suckers are everywhere, right? They, and they, they live, they survive. Uh, as long as you have either minerals or sunlight, they will they will successfully um, colonize and and keep reproducing or splitting, and they provide this amazing, uh, you know, again bioactive silica that's very easy for um, the bacteria to break down and then release plant available. But that's what's crazy about that cultivar. You would think that with this level of bioremediation that's actually occurring in the soil, that there would not have been. Uh, that level um, of, you know, of cadmium or arsenic. It just, it doesn't yeah. make sense. The only thing. And, that- and I was going to say too, um, I, I tested individually everything that went into the beds and everything came back below detectable levels of cadmium. And it really shows in everything that I grow in it. Um, except that particular cultivar, some, some, somehow this plant will just find the most minute levels possible and it will take it up. It's incredible. 
I even know it was in the realm of possibilities. And we did notice that his molybdenum was down a little, which does give reason for why cadmium uptake. Yeah. But where's the friggin' arsenic? You know, why? Why is that why did the arsenic come up on this on this cultivar as well? It, but the yeah, the arsenic is less of a concern because it's it's higher than I see in my potting mixes, but it's still low. Right, you know but it's mean? it's how how are these things becoming available? What what sources? Are they coming from? Because again, everything got tested before it went in. I can't. Plants can't make shit up out of the friggin' air, right? I wouldn't think. I asked him. I'm like, hey, is there a? Is there actually, a actually, <laughs> actually, when you think about it, other than he's not doing a lot of air exchanges, that is in our air. It does get drawn in by the stomata of the plant. Well, again, that being said, the first thing I asked him, I said, "Are there any mines near you?" Is there any any kind of commercial activity that could be either producing it in 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 an, in an air or atmospheric manner that that could be potentially causing this issue? But then he talks about how tight his building is, and he's not doing that many exchanges. So I mean, again, Av, come on, man, hook me up. What do you think? How is this even possible? I just think it's an amazing plant that's got an affinity for, for something, and that's why we used it as a bioremediation. It'd be interesting to look at the genetics of that pheno and see if there's anything in, you know, if, if you could find something, whether it's about the root structure or just its ability um, to, to be a accumulator of this particular heavy metal. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and then and then it'd be interesting to perhaps graph that onto another plant. Oh, and see that's a great idea. I unfortunately have to jump, and there are some amazing questions, so I will watch the rest of the show tomorrow. But I I do have to leave. My my wife is giving me the evil eye for a long time. Have a good night, brother. See you next week. See you now. Okay, and you got. Oh, yeah, I mean, um, you know, even the my other flower room, um, using the same water and everything that was in the realm of possibilities, and uh, you know, it's not it's not in the water. Um, so anyway, I'm I'm being relaxed about it because we're still talking about very low levels. Uh, it's just I want to have the cleanest weed possible, and you know, I want to work at. Um, lowering those those levels as much as much as i can yeah i would say try what ab just said i think that's brilliant if you graft that cultivar onto another and and yeah. if, and watch it and see as it flowers if there's any uh detectable levels i mean yeah. that's that would be a really really interesting experiment i'm running it as a as another test plant uh again right now and i'm curious to see um if it's going to test again on a, on another test grow if it's going to test that high again we'll see we'll see what well, so far it's only been that one cultivar but looks like we oh, got yeah. a number of questions so let's let's uh ken sure. can you team up um yeah i actually i just wanted to to say that maybe make sure that you keep that particular cultivar latent if you uh need to draw up that uh in a remediation you know something you can plant in there seriously yes and and to be honest with you comfrey 
uh, hemp, cannabis, all of these plants, these dynamic accumulators have showed incredible potential in doing yeah. just that. Although, unfortunately, the you know major environmental engineering firms uh, hate the idea of in situ cleaning because the way they operate is they they dig it up, haul it to some other state, burn it, and then haul back clean soil. So they make a billions of dollars doing their renovations or restorations, causing taxpayers outrageous amounts of money. Yep. So they absolutely do not like guys like me talking about these types of things. As a matter of fact, a girl, a woman who is graduating this year, did a bioremediation uh, south of here uh, in Riverside. And at the end of the project, she was collecting all her plants and all her science gear loaded up her van, drove home, parked, and then the next morning was going to go into the lab, unload, and then bring all the plant matter in there and start testing it to see exactly what we were talking about. Well, her van got stolen. Oh, geez. And the van got found a day later, abandoned, with mm -hmm. all the scientific equipment, no plant matter. This is what this is the shit that we deal with. It's, it's yeah. fucking horrific. But anyway, next, let's go, let's do positive things. Let's go on to the questions. Okay. So the first one is I'm interested to hear about potato cover crop. I have two and 300 gallon pots with native grass, elf alpha and Korean les. Uh, is it too late to add them uh, more on or less on? Oh, no, you can, you can add them at any time. You know, it just depends on the, the cultivar of potato. I mean, do you want them to grow in the pot after your harvest? Well, there's certain cultivars that last longer. Or <clears throat> there's other cultivars that grow very quick, those little colorful potatoes. So absolutely, you can you can add them and leave them, you know, overwinter with them. You keep the pot alive if you want, if, if the pots are indoors. If they're outdoors, well, obviously not. But um, there are ways to winterize your pot by pay, taking hay bales or leaves mm -hmm. creating a mound around them um, in that case you could overwinter again it depends on where you are i mean if you're sub-zero you know it's yeah space <laughs> place specific use common yep. sense okay. Come on. so the next question from uh, banacana is uh, what are depths measurements of your horizons? I believe that's the one you want to make sure I brought up, right? No, it was the one after that. But, okay, but there's a it. formula. There's a formula. Just go to uh, go to YouTube, search Leighton Morrison Soil Horizons. It'll explain it all very detailed. Basically, it's a one, two, four. So if in in Tom's case, he had 18 inch deep beds, so he did a two and a half inch. Uh, e horizon, a five inch, a horizon, and a 10 inch O horizon. So you can see it's just one yeah. part times two for the A. It's just double. Yeah. Times four to, yeah, double it. Yeah. Okay. And then we'll go to his next question. I think I recall Tom Waters from Bottom. Is it possible to drive back this way? Is it possible to incorporate top and bottom watering somehow or? a reason to or maybe not to the cover crops tom you want to take that one sure you can dry back for sure just stop watering from the bottom um and uh like i said um 
once or twice a week, I, I turn off my, my water cycle from the bottom and I do water on top just to, I think that soil expects water to come from the top for, from rain. So I do give it that rain uh, once or twice a week. Um, and I mean, if I do notice that it's getting a little bit dry on the top, uh, I'll just, I'll just glaze it with water. Um, but I do have to get in deeper with, um, tensiometers and I, I want to try dry backs, you know, uh, but so far just, uh, letting the bed wick from the E horizon has given me great successes. Anything to add Layton? No, he's, he described it perfectly. I mean, that's, he's, he's biomimicking. That's the key yeah. to this whole thing is, you know, recreating, not reinventing nature, just following her lead. I think it's, yeah. it's hard to overdo both ways, you know, cause if you, if you top water and you overwater, well, your, your, um, your E horizon is going to take it up. Um, and same for if you underwater, well, your bed is going to start waking from the E. So in my experience, you really have to screw up pretty big time to, to have watering issues with the system. <laughs> and that's where Pigman is uh, uh, saying bottom watering won't it too compact or too much clay in the mix. So Pigman, um, do the same thing. Leighton Morrison, YouTube, Soil Horizons. The reason the E horizon is the E horizon is to prevent any kind of clay, sand, organic matter, anything, or excuse me, not sand, clay, silt, or organic matter from penetrating down in there and creating those kinds of compaction zones. So that will never happen with the system. Now, going back to the, the carbon, uh, what about air soil carbon exchange? And I think that's where we're trying to figure out where the co2 is coming from from the the soil yeah it's go for it late uh, is again it's this is something again that's really cool about um working with tom is these unique discoveries because he is well instrumented and understands how to look at complex things like replicating nature but no i was really surprised to hear that those levels go as high as they do and then when you do dump, they drop down to 150 and hover. So yes. definitely when next time you're at 150 and hovering, hit hit underneath the plants and let's see what's going on there. Let's try it out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and let us know what your meter says at that point because something is going on. Yeah. I tend to think that he'll probably be back on uh, come harvest time so we can see all those stacked buds. <laughs> no, exactly. I just want to see if this is going to work. I'm going to go in my grow room right now because this is uh, this is um, sunset right now in the grow room. Let's oh, see if wow. I... we'll we'll see if uh, we stay on. Uh, Check this tree up. Wow, too cool. Oh, beautiful man! That's a hell of a sunset, brother. <laughs> Well, and that's nature because she at the in sunset uh, you have the the far reds. Yep. Very cool. Uh, oh yeah, like the, the the plants know that it's nighttime, and again with the CO two, you see it like start going up right away. Boom. 
So even when you switch to, to the different spectrum, it goes up at that point. So even before it lights off. Uh, no, it, no, no Right, Like the minute that it's fully off, then okay. CO2 starts going, starts going up like the minute. Seriously. It's just blowing off excess CO2. The plants are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there's a, there's a certain percentage really sort of precise that won't, well, isn't it like, I don't know, 80% of the CO2 the plant takes up. It put back. It puts back in the air. That I'm not sure about, and I think that's probably again cultivar specific. Okay, because yeah. forests aren't forests like that. The forest will take up um, a certain amount of CO2 and will release it back at night. Maybe like I don't know if it's eighty percent or ninety percent or you know, again the, the the whole understanding of like these inner or reactive things that are happening inside of plants are just so amazing but there's no real money in it so no labs or universities are really diving down what it really is when we get tits and pieces on our you know science feeds but you know nothing like like that one woman years back who uh was studying wildfire smoke and biologically testing it and coming to find out that living in the smoke and on the ash was fungi, protozoa, bacteria. Cool. I mean, that, yeah, that was like, that was like mind blowing. Cause I'm like, holy shit, nature, another way nature re-inoculates by blowing smoke, which would happen when a lightning strike and a forest fire happened, then that smoke would then wherever it went over would be laying out, more and more biology from that one bioregion. So it, it you know, again, like mass migrations. You know, I wonder really if that's the same thing happening with the Sierra sands that come uh, off. Oh, absolutely, and, absolutely. Yeah. They used to they used to think that it was just uh, phosphorus that was coming from the Sahara Desert, but then another dude or group of people did a follow up study on NASA study. I think in two thousand and nineteen or eighteen. Um, where they actually took it to the next level and realized, oh, no, no, no. The so Sahara Dance are fertilizing the Amazon. Like, it's not just phosphorus. It's it's diatomaceous earth, silica, um, nitrogen, everything. All of the trace minerals, everything was coming from that sand. It was mineralized. So, again, it's really cool, you know, really cool stuff that, that nature does naturally. And, and it gets yeah. into the whole... Oh, we can make a biosphere. We can recreate it. I I don't think so. I mean, yeah, you can have a grow tent, but are you ever going to replicate what really happens out in on the planet? I don't think so. Anyway, that's off topic. Next. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Are you getting fruiting bodies coming out of your beds yet? I think he's asking mushrooms. Yeah, that's what I would. That's a fruiting body. Hopefully soon, not yet. Um, I've had some in my bedroom uh, in pots with uh, pots that have been there for a long time that I've been reusing for a long time, um, but not in the beds yet. I'm just uh, on my third grow right now. And I believe over time that they will for sure. I mean, your oh, yeah. numbers he got back from Andy are, are really great. So 
we know we have a good fungal presence. It's just a matter of time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where, you know, when we were talking to farmers or I was, you know, years ago, when you saw those fruiting bodies uh, in the field, that's when you knew you'd actually done something right. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. That's where you were hoping. have a bunch of mushrooms coming out uh, in our outdoor garden. Did you show, do you want to show a couple quick pictures of my uh, outdoor? Sure. We, we've got three more questions. Uh, yeah, let's get through the questions and then we'll get back to the picks. Okay. Sure. Um, question for Leighton. Walking through the woods, you find numerous different fungi. Is it good to pick them and add to compost pile for worms and biology to break down or is there dangers? Well, first of all, you got to be careful about poisonous mushrooms, right? So that's the number one answer. Um, and I guess your what is your goal? Are you are you looking to get them to sporulate, uh, provide spores to to regenerate, or are you providing food for your worms? Because if you're trying to get the spores, then you need to capture them at just the right time, cut them, refrigerate them, dry them out, and then take a spore print. So that you can capture those guys. Um, if you're just looking to feed your worms, then just toss them right in there. Will there be uh, potential for inoculation? Absolutely. Um, basically, the body of that fruit is basically mycelium. So, I mean, you know you have living uh, fungi organisms or individual organisms. So that potential for that to inoculate has to be real. Um, but again, it's... Think about what your goals are. Okay. And then uh, Silly Lily wanted to point out if we could communicate with biology, the answer they'd have to our questions. Ah, Silly Lily, spirituality, <laughs> meditation, intuition. We already do. Can we get into their individual brains? I don't know. Or, or maybe they're already our brains. <laughs> I would say if we could expand ourselves to see all of it, then we would be contacting their brain. But I don't think we've got that expansion down yet. And I think DMT will help. <laughs> yeah. Well, there you go, eh? So uh, Southern <laughs> water wicks 10 to 12 inches. No, it works a lot more than that, I would say. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Again, it depends on the on the actual materials, um, you know, the levels or relationships of sand, silk, lay, and organic matter. But no, water will, will move all over the place. Yeah, the only for me, I have no problem. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Layton, go for it. I was going to say, the only problem we have is when the water moves horizontally. Like, look at the islands of Hawaii, how they're cracked and creviced. I mean, they're, they're beautiful, but that is, that is when water moves horizontally, it creates erosion. So mm -hmm. that's that's a situation where you're not going to get wicking. You're going to get erosion. Yeah. But then you've got to have your building kind of tilted a little bit, I think, to one side, Tom, to have that hack actually happen. <laughs> yeah, uh, there was great effort building the tables to have them perfectly level. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I wonder if his meter stops at 150 parts per million. Well, that's a legit, uh, yeah, maybe. You'll have to check out your, your owner's manual to see. And Seriously, then uh, that's a possibility. D 
Do you run solely 100% 660 nanometers during sunrise and sunset? Uh, during sunrise, I don't. During sunset, it's 720. Okay. Right? So that sunset that we just saw, that's full 720. Okay. And that yeah. was the last question. All right. Back to cool. picks. Now, obviously, you're going to have to bring them up because I showed all the picks that you sent to me. So, oh, you didn't get the. I think the last email I sent you was uh, outdoor picks, just from our garden. And it shows oh, like okay. our, more picks. It says here. Yeah. Let, let me just download them, guys, and uh, we'll have them in a it's moment. It's just, I thought. On the chance that Dempure would see this, they would see <laughs> that I, I don't bullshit about my outdoor scene. <laughs> well, do you have their contact information? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm just waiting to, to build my um, my second room with, with beds before contact, contacting them for the certification. Because I'm oh. still running pots in that room. Yeah, so Beautiful. it's our it's our second uh, second year garden, but uh, and to be honest with you, um, I I just consult this garden. So this is my brother in law, my business partner that's um, that fully did this, and this is right outside the door from our facility. Awesome. Looks yeah. like raised beds. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then next picture, you'll see like all the wood chips there. We spend a whole day um, just gathering dead wood, wood on the property and chip that. I see your snowblower in the background. I don't see the wood yeah. chipper though. <laughs> no, we actually rented that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that's right out like um, right next to the garden. We have that beautiful pond. I hope you're so, using the pond water to water your garden. Well, we should. Um, we're not right now, to be honest. That That's an excellent idea. Yeah, just um, get a compound bucket, throw it in there, grab some, dump it in the watering can, and just walk across the tops of the beds. Yeah, excellent Great idea. Too. Top water. We actually, we actually have problems with too much water because we have beaver dams. <laughs> gotcha. So, yeah. Some days that's a good problem to have is too much water. Yeah. Right? Come out here. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was another question from that gentleman uh, asking about outdoor horizontal systems. So interesting. Oh, ironically enough, uh, last week I built, maybe it was the week before. Yeah, two weekends ago. Not last, not yesterday, the week before, or the weekend before, um, I got a call from a client who um, basically has a parking lot that she wanted to grow a food forest in. And I'm like, well, I, the only thing I could suggest is going up. And she's like, I can't go up. I'm like, okay, well, then you're going to have to pitch the bottom of this hole because it's probably 20 feet of fill. It was all filled in. Um, floodplain so that we the humans could build buildings and parking lots and all this shit that we do um so i had them dig the bottom of the ditch dig a two-foot ditch 
pitch everything to one area, put in the sand layer, mix up in a horizon, brought her down just pure straight uh, biocomplete compost for the O horizon. Um, and she's going to have a blast with it because again, if she overwaters it or if we get torrential pours, downpours like we did last winter, um, she's not going to turn it into an anaerobic cauldron because that's what would happen in that environment. It's going to take years for that soil to soften up enough to actually drain on its own. So we had to kind of give it a, a jump start, geologically speaking. And then they're going to tie in that with other gardens as they move forward so that everything will, will drain out to the river as it would naturally have done. You, you were tipping Tom's building is what you're saying. <laughs> well, if he had built his beds out of level, then we would have had to tip his building. <laughs> no, you just, you got to think, you got to understand, use common sense. Look, if you dig in the ground, do a perk test. Pour in some water, watch it. If it doesn't drain within 30, uh, 30 to 60 seconds, you got a major problem. It's not draining, and therefore you go up. Like I see these people building Hugo cultures. They dig a pit, throw the trees in there, and cover it with soil. I'm like, oh, God, did you make a mess? No, the Hugo culture was built on top of soil, not in the ground. And that's this misconception that, that people tend to run with bro science instead of really doing the research and looking back to understand where this came from, why it was done, and how it was done. Don't always listen to your brothers. Do the, do the work yourself. Anyway, on that note, we, we did a that went by really quick, Tom. <laughs> yeah, I love you guys. Thank you so much for having me on. Two, yeah, two yeah. So, I love it. Yeah, no, I'm glad we did. It was it was perfect because we cleaned up the things that we didn't finish last time. So, and then definitely book ahead with Ken on like maybe just before you knock down. So we sure. can kind of see see where you are. Sure and, uh, yeah, yeah and, and by then you'll have a lot more back so that we can talk more about these uptake issues, um, as well as you know the CO two and some of these other interesting things that we've sussed out of today's uh, uh, podcast. 100%. So what are we looking about four to five weeks, Tom? If that, uh, a Doesn't little bit more than that, uh, about eight weeks. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's a that longer flowering. Well, yeah, I'm just six weeks in right now. Okay. Uh, six six days. Six days in. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to run it about 60 days. So cool. we're talking, yeah, in 50, 54 days. Okay, yeah. okay. So, guys, um, later today we have um, uh, Daniel Lorette from the GrowDoc app, um, who actually, by using the app, uh, John Burfello found that he had PM on, on clones that he was sending out and he hadn't even noticed it yet. So this is an oh, app really? that works for testing, um, you know, deficiencies and problems with your cannabis plants. Uh, he's going to be on at 6 PM Pacific. So you're not going to want to miss that one. Fantastic. He's actually from, uh, the, the, the same city as I live in, in New Brunswick. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a smart man who, who's done a lot of research with different universities to strip out the different components like calcium, magnesium, phosphorus, and then uh, have the AI figure out what is actually missing and how it shows on the plant leaf. 
Yeah. That's awesome. Because a lot of those deficiencies are actually not what we think they are. They're, they're an interaction or a cause out causation of a different reaction. So that's, that's a handy tool. Definitely. Definitely. And then of course, uh, on Wednesday we have, um, Andy Lopez, the invisible gardener, uh, and myself, uh, speaking every Wednesday, we have Ben from Acadia Farms on with Luna and uh, with the Queen of the Sun growing on Thursday. Um, and we'll see what happens on Friday for a damn pure episode. Anyway, guys, other than that, uh, you guys want to have anything more to add? Uh, no, just I love you guys. <laughs> go, go, go. <laughs> speaking of which, I got to go. <laughs> Peace, everybody. Thanks, everybody.